All right, good morning. Choir, for that excellent song. Kids, um, you are now dismissed. You are free uh, to return uh, to Sunday school. Um, glad you guys are here. Welcome. I'm excited to get to open up and study God's Word uh, with you this morning. Got a fun one on today. We'll see. Um, take out your Bibles and, and turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 13 through 17, page 848 um, in your pew Bibles if you're using those. Um, there, there are two general things that, are, that our culture considers to be impolite dinner conversation, right? It's, it's religion and it's politics, right? Because those are the two topics that are the most divisive uh, among friends and, and family. The only thing more incendiary than, than talking about religion or politics is talking about religion and politics, right? The, the relationship between the two. But that is exactly what we are going to do here um, this morning. Listen, we're at church, right? We're, we're pretty accustomed to talking about religion, but it's, it's amazing, even in churches, how sticky it can get to talk about politics. So I'm just going to say up front that I'm sure that I'm going to say something this morning that is going to offend somebody. So I'm just going to apologize um, in advance. Um, but remember, that is why we preach expositionally, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. I shouldn't pick this sermon because this is something I wanted to talk about. No, this is, this is what's next in the Word. This is what's next um, in, in the sermon. And my goal, as always, though I never do it perfectly, my goal is to simply not give you my personal opinions or what I think, but to explain to you um, what God's Word says. Right. So to the best of my ability, what follows derives from Jesus' own words. doesn't matter what I think. I don't care about your opinions. Our job is to align what we believe with what God has revealed. And yes, the Bible even addresses politics. And our passage this morning is specifically about the issue of taxes. So we're going to have to talk about taxes a little bit. But the question about taxes is actually just a symptom of a much bigger underlying issue. Right? This is a question, not necessarily of taxes, but this is a question of authority. Right? This is a question of the relationship between God and government. And the corollary question of the relationship between us as Christians and the government we find ourselves under. How are we called as Christians to relate to secular government? Especially when many aspects of that government seem to probably be immoral and directly opposed to God's law in, in certain areas, right? What do we do with that? A am I the only one that thinks VJ should be preaching this message, right? Come on, I, I tried to get him to do it, but he, he, he wouldn't. Um, so here I am giving you politics, but we're, we'll, we'll get through it together. But, but this is not some kind of abstract, theoretical question, right? This is extremely practical and relevant. How are we called to relate to government? What do we and do we not owe government? What right do they have over us? Where does that right come from? Are there any limits to that right? right? That is what we are going to talk about here this morning. And we're going to do so in terms of authority. Right? That's the big question here. Who has authority? We're going to look first at the legitimate but the limited authority of government. And then we'll close by looking at the universal and the unlimited authority of God. Right, so we're going to do this. Look down there at Mark chapter 12. We'll start in verse 13. You can follow along as I read. This is God's word. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, 
Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we need you um, as we work through this difficult and challenging passage. Father, I need you uh, to speak um, through me. Father, uh, confront me um, with my sin. Um, Father, show me my need for a Savior um, just as much as everyone else in here, Father. I pray that you would take these truths and apply them to our hearts. Father, we would see the good gift that you have given us in government, government and, it, and its legitimate authority, Father. But I pray that we would, we would leave here focusing and praising you for your unlimited and your good and gracious authority over our lives. And Father, to you be all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's kind of set the stage here for just a little bit before we get into some of our kind of applications. It is now somewhere around Tuesday afternoon. Right? We don't know exactly when, but it's Tuesday afternoon, and we're about 72 hours now before Jesus' crucifixion. Right? So we're running low on time, and the, and the conflict is, is picking up. Things are getting hotter. The authorities are really starting to put the pressure on Jesus and come after him. And this whole time, I've been talking about the religious authorities, how they're after Jesus. But that, that's actually not the whole picture. Look at who comes to Jesus here. We've got the Pharisees and the Herodians. And we've already seen these two groups, if you remember them way back in Mark chapter 3. They've already started conspiring against Jesus together back then. But this is the first time the Herodians show back up. But if you don't remember, or you don't know who these two different groups are, you'll, you'll miss a little bit of the significance of, of what is going on here. Because the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're not buddies, right? And these guys, they, they don't get along. They are not allies. They are direct enemies of each other. They are always in conflict. They are always fighting um, with each other. Remember that Herod was the king at the time. But quite honestly, he wasn't a real king. Remember, Herod was kind of the, the puppet king that Rome had put into place. Well, Herod's authority was derived from Rome. He answered to them. They were the real authority. He just kind of had some kind of... He's like, he's like the king in England right now, or the queen. They, there's no real authority, right? They just kind of stand there and the parliament does everything. Well, that's kind of what Herod is like. He's not a real, actual king. He, he is answering to and dependent on Rome, which means that the Herodians, right, the supporters of Herod, were also um, supporters of Rome, and Rome was the enemy. Right? The Herodians were a secular, non-religious party that was basically working for and serving Rome. So, you see why the Pharisees may have some problems with these guys. Because the Pharisees were the super strict religious leaders who absolutely hated Rome and everything that it represented. So you've got the secular liberals on one hand and you've got the religious conservatives on the other, right? This, this conflict has been going on for 2,000 years. Same thing today, same thing back then. These two groups do not get along. And these two groups never agreed except when it came to Jesus. Why? Well, because as we've said, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender, right? The one thing that they could agree on was that Jesus was a threat. But he was a threat to each of them in very different ways. 
And this kind of helps to explain some of the context for our question. One not religious supporter of Rome, the other super religious opponent of Rome and kind of voice of the people. So, are you seeing how the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, is a trap, right? It's, it's a lose-lose situation. There is no right answer. My ethics courses, they always use this question. I never understood it. It was weird, but they always use it as an example. The question was, this is like the question, have you ever, have you stopped beating your wife, right? Do you get to see, it's, there's no right answer to the question. You say, yes, I have. Well, that implies that you were beating your wife. Well, that's not good. You say, no, you haven't. Well, that's obviously problematic, right? There's no right answer. The yes or no does not work for that question. And that's the same thing here for Jesus' question. This is a trap question. Yes or no, Jesus is in trouble. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, the Herodians will march straight to the Roman authorities and turn Jesus in, and he will be arrested for inciting rebellion. But if he says, yes, pay the taxes, the Pharisees will run straight to the people and discredit him with them. He's supposed to be the Messiah. He's supposed to kick out the Romans. See, he's a phony. He's not who he says he was. So they think they finally got Jesus. There's no way out. One side or the other are going to get him. That's why it's these two groups that come to Jesus. They're, They're so opposed that one of them is going to get him no matter what he says. But again, keep remembering that that, that the question is far bigger than a question of taxes. This is about authority. This is about sovereignty and right to rule. This is about the legitimacy of government. And the question is so loaded because of the history of the Jewish people. A thousand years earlier, Israel was this great and, and powerful and wealthy and independent kingdom. They were a theocracy. Theo just means God. At the end of that just means rule. It was rule of God. Yes, they had a king, but the ultimate authority in Israel, the ultimate ruler was God. He he established the kingdom. He gave the laws. He was in charge. But now they are ruled by foreign, Gentile, pagan nations. They, They ultimately answered to Rome. They could not do anything without Rome's permission. They even had to get Rome's permission to crucify Jesus. They they couldn't do anything without them. They were in bondage, and they just absolutely despised it. Everywhere they looked, they would have been reminded of Rome's power over them. Soldiers, flags, tax collectors. Even the money itself was a slap in the face and a constant reminder to them of their condition. Down in verse 15, Jesus says to them, he says, well, bring me a denarius that I may look at it. So a denarius is a coin. That's all it means. And it was worth about the average kind of day's labor for kind of an average kind of lower class blue collar worker. He says, bring it. Verse 16 says, they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, there was a bunch of different Caesar's. Right? All the rulers of Rome were Caesar something. Right? This one was Tiberius Caesar. Right? He's kind of the second main Caesar. He ruled from the year 14 to the year 37. Right? So he ruled for a large chunk of Jesus' life. So this coin, this denarius, would have been a Tiberius denarius. And this is really interesting because we actually have a bunch of these. Right? We've we just found a bunch of them over the years and we know exactly what they look like. In fact, if you're really interested, you can go home after church, 
you can hop on eBay, talk to your parents if you're younger, for about $400, you can buy a Tiberius Denarius on eBay. One of the kind of the one in poor condition. If you want a really nice mint Tiberius Denarius, it was about $3,000 I found. Um, I thought, really interesting, right? It'd be really cool if we found the one and had one of these, right? What if you had like the coin that Jesus was holding? Right? That'd be really interesting. But it'd end up in Rome and it'd get worshipped and all these things. So it's good that we don't have the actual coin. But the point is that we know exactly what these coins look like and what they said. And that really kind of helps inform some of what is going on here in this story. And they look a whole lot like a quarter, right? They were, they were silver, they were a similar size, and on the front of it was just a profile of Tiberius' face, right? It looked a lot like George Washington. And around his face was an inscription, an, an abbreviated Latin. And this is where it's interesting, because notice Jesus draws their attention to the face and the inscription. Well, the, the text doesn't tell us what the inscription was, but we know from the coin itself what it said. And in Latin, it said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So Tiberius was the adopted son of Augustus Caesar. And Augustus was kind of like the founder. He was the first emperor of kind of the Roman Empire as we know it. And Augustus was, was deified. He was treated as a god. He had all these different temples to him. People worshipped him. And so this coin says that Tiberius is the son of God and that he is Augustus, which means the exalted one or the renowned one. Right? That's what August means, which, by the way, I think that demands that we change the name of the month of August, right? because August is obviously the worst month. Right? It's really hot. There's no basketball. There's no football. Nothing good happens in August. So there's nothing exalted about it. So we're going we're gonna to start the movement, and we're going to change that. But the point is that Tiberius is the exalted one. He is the son of God. Right? Well, are you starting to see why the Jews would have kind of had a slight problem with this coin? Right? This was blatant blasphemy. They were being forced to carry with them at all times an image in their pocket that claimed to be the king and that claimed to be the exalted son of God. And that's not even it, actually. The back of the coin on the other side was a picture of a seated woman. And we're not sure who exactly it is. Some people think it was Livia, who was Tiberius' mother. Some people think it was the Roman goddess Pax, which just means kind of peace, one of the main goddesses of the empire. But the point is that around her was written the inscription Pontifex Maximus. And listen, we still use that today because that's what the Pope calls himself. But Pontifex Maximus in Latin just means high priest. Right? So Tiberius was not only the supreme political ruler, but he was also the supreme religious ruler. He was the high priest. He was seen as a god. He even got his own temples eventually. Right? So there's just so much arrogant blasphemy contained on this small little coin. And the Jews were being forced to use it. Can you imagine today, if all of a sudden tomorrow, Obama started claiming to be the son of God and declaring himself as the high priest over the state religion, and then he printed all this money with his face on it and his claims to be God, and then he forced you to pay your taxes on April 15th with that money. Right? I think that a few of us would be a little bit uncomfortable with that. But that's exactly what the Jewish people are facing here with this tax and this money. So again, there's clearly much more wrapped up into this question than just taxes. Taxes are bad enough, right? People don't like taxes. 
This very tax, actually, about 20 years earlier, had already called a made, caused a major revolt up in Galilee. Jesus would have been a boy when this happened in the year 6. Jesus would have been about 8 or 9. Uh, and it was a big revolt. Rome had to come in and crush this revolt when they refused to pay the tax. Now, that's part of what's going on here, by the way. People are trying to see if Jesus is going to do the same thing. This guy's name was Judas, the Galilean. If he was going to lead the kind of same kind of revolt against Rome. Right? People hate taxes. The American Revolution started in part as a result of taxes. Taxes are incendiary in and of themselves. But this is about more than a tax. This is about authority. This is about government and God. And they believed that they were forcing Jesus to choose between the two. If he chooses God and he says, don't pay the tax, the Herodians would kill him. If he chooses government and says, pay the tax, the Pharisees will kill him. But of course, as we've seen time and time again, Jesus' answer will just blow them away. He, he will not be trapped. In verse 17, Jesus utters what would become one of his most memorable, memorable, and famous statements uh, ever. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. We're, we get so familiar with hearing things like this that we, we miss how revolutionary this statement is. Multiple commentators talk about how these 16 words of Jesus are the beginning and the foundation of Western political philosophy. Right? These words are just so important to what we believe about government. You could do a whole course on Jesus' statement here. Right? We're going to somehow condense it down to about 30 minutes. But, but it's very clear how brilliant um, he, he is and what he is saying. He, he answers their question. At the same time, he avoids the trap, but then he takes it so much further than they think. And he manages not just to offend the Herodians, um, he, he, offends, he ends up offending both of them. Right? They're going to say he's going to offend one of us and we'll kill him. Well, he just offends both of them. Right? That's what he does um, with his answer here. And that's what I want to do for the rest of our time is see how he does that. So we're going to break it down into two parts. We'll do the first. We're going to look at the render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Right? And for this, from this, we see the legitimate but the limited authority of government. First, government does possess legitimate authority that we as Christians are responsible to. Authority is a very biblical and a very good thing. We were designed to need authority. We need parents, we need pastors, we need bosses. Humanity needs authority. Without any sort of structure or system of authority, there's, there's anarchy, there is, there's chaos. We read Romans 13 earlier in the service on purpose. The first verse says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, there are all kinds of different theories, of uh, secular theories about government. Right? Government exists because of a social contract. It's based on who possesses the power. Right? Might makes right. There's an evolutionary theory of government. There's all these different uh, thoughts or approaches or ideas, but, but none of them are correct. Right? Paul is stating very clearly that authority, that, that government has been instituted by God. God created government. It was his plan, his idea, um, his design, not ours. And I think that it was his plan from the very beginning. I think you can even find government in Genesis chapter 1. Right? You may think I'm stretching here, but, uh, but I think you can find government in Genesis 1.28, which is referred to as the cultural mandate. 
Right? God creates the man and the woman. He comes to them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Then he says, fill the earth. He says, subdue the earth. He says, have dominion. And this is called the cultural mandate because this was God saying to humanity, I have created everything, right? Now, as my stewards, um, you are created in my image and likeness. I am giving it to you to develop and to rule over. God gave us the resources and then said, get to work, create, build, develop, grow, spread out, organize. And I think that the idea of government is included in that. Government is one of the ways that we subdue and that we have dominion. So government was God's idea from the very beginning. Right? Government's not a result of the fall. Government is not some bad, evil thing. God institutes government. And Romans 13 says that there is no authority that is not from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So government is good. Right? It is legitimate. And Jesus affirms that when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He is affirming that, yes, Caesar does have a legitimate authority and that we should submit to it. And he is doing so in reference to taxes. Even a tax that is paid to a foreign, pagan, immoral society using a blasphemous coin. Without saying the actual words, Jesus says, pay the tax. So he offends the Pharisees uh, right away. And Paul says the same thing in verse 7 of Romans 13. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. So Jesus says, pay your taxes. Paul says, pay your taxes. Since government, uh, since God has instituted government, uh, since he has established its authority, then it has the right to demand certain things from us. And taxes are one of those things. Right? Listen, the money belonged to Caesar anyway. That's the point Jesus is making. Look, it's, it's his. Just give it back to him. What's the big deal? Give him what is his. And I love that Jesus, Jesus doesn't just pull out a coin and say, check this out. He makes them find a coin and bring him a coin. He is reminding them that they had the coins, that they were using the coins for business. right? And since they had no problem doing business with Caesar's money, they had better pay Caesar's taxes. And plus, listen, it's not just like it's an arbitrary tax that was paying for nothing. right? Governments don't just tax people for fun. Right? Sometimes it seems like they do. Maybe some of them do. But again, theoretically, they, that's not the point of taxes. Right? They tax for a purpose. They, they tax to pay for services that they provide. Now listen, we could have a long, complicated discussion about how much government should be involved in our lives, what services they should provide, and thus how much they should tax. Right? If you have questions about that, go see VJ, because we won't get into that here. Right? We're not talking about what you think about amount of taxes and how much whatever. We're talking about kind of the idea of taxes in principle. Right? And taxes exist to pay for services that the government provides its people. And the Jews were benefiting for, in many different ways from their relationship to Rome. Right? They had the best system of roads that the world had ever known. Right? And the church spread in part on those roads because finally travel and access over the whole empire was so easy because of these roads. They had protection by the world's greatest military from all these surrounding nations that had kept attacking them. They were benefiting from the Pax Romana, which just means the Roman peace. There was relative peace throughout the empire. Right? The government was providing them services, so the government had the right um, to collect a tax for those services, right? just as the U.S. government does today. 
Our government provides us with countless services. Listen, maybe more than they should, depending on your politics. But again, that's not the question. They have a legitimate authority to collect taxes for those services. Jesus says, render to Obama the things that are Obama's. If our government has been specifically instituted by God and given authority, if it is legitimate and has the right to collect taxes as both Jesus and Paul affirm, then we as Christians, as followers of Christ, must pay taxes. Right? It is not our duty just to government. It is our duty to God. Aren't you kind of bummed, right? We're getting this sermon like two weeks before taxes are due, right? I was. I was like, man, why is this text coming up now? Like, I'm going to be thinking of this when I'm like filling those numbers in the boxes. Like, all right, I got to fill them in right. Um, because listen, I'm, I'm with you. I, I hate paying taxes, right? It, it's hard to, to look at that check and see all that hard-earned money um, going away. But, but at this point, we're no longer talking about politics, right? I don't care how strongly you disagree with our government or leadership. I don't care how small you think government should be and how much lower taxes should be as a result. This is not a question of your views on government. And this is not a question of how immoral you think our government is. I want you to think about this, because some Christians will, will try to skirt around the tax issue and blame it on the government. Well, the Bible calls me to be a good steward of God's money. I don't agree with how the government is using that money. Therefore, it is okay for me to kind of fudge the numbers a little bit on my taxes. Wrong, right? Think about the context that Jesus and Paul are operating in here. Right? Jesus says, pay the tax to Caesar, to Rome, which would be the very government that was about to put him to death. The very government that would kill many of his disciples and countless numbers of other Christians. Jesus knew all that was going to happen, and he says, pay the tax. What about Paul? Paul wrote those words in Romans 13 in the middle of the reign of the Emperor Nero. But you think America in 2014 is bad, right? Oh, no, it's, it's so immoral and oppressive and, and anti-Christian. Listen, we got nothing on Nero. It was under Nero that the church experienced its first great persecution. Right? There was a man named Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman historian, and he lived during the same time with Nero, right? So he, he, he witnessed all this and recorded what was happening. And he writes that sometimes Nero liked to take Christians and he liked to dip them and coat them and cover them in wax and impale them on stakes in his garden and burn them at night to light his parties out, out in Rome in his garden. His big parties just lit by countless Christians being burned alive for Nero. We think that it was Nero who had Paul and Peter killed in Rome. This guy was vicious, right? We've, not, we've experienced nothing like this guy. And the point is that the Roman government at the time that Paul was writing in Romans 13, telling us to be submissive to government, that government that he was writing about was not so warm and cuddly and kind towards Christians. But he still said be subject to the governing authorities and pay what you owe them. If they can do it in Rome in 50 or 60 AD, we can do it in America in 2014. Right, so again, this is not a question of your politics. This is a question of obedience to the clear teaching of Scripture. Right? In verse 5 of Romans 13, Paul tells us to be in subjection to government to avoid God's wrath. 
that, that's pretty serious, right? Uh, that kind of makes me pause and wonder there for a second. We all agree that we should not murder, and that we shouldn't commit adultery, and that we shouldn't steal. Like, I doubt very many of you, hopefully, come see me if you're having this problem, are going into stores and just kind of stealing stuff and walking out, right? We all recognize that that is bad. But for some reason, we think that it's okay to mess around with the numbers, to not report the full number, to kind of keep something back, and not honestly and accurately pay our taxes. This is one of those kind of respectable Christian sins that everyone thinks is, is okay. Oh, it's, you know, no big deal. Now listen, it is, it's stealing just as much as any type of stealing is. You are stealing what is rightfully the government's. You are keeping it from them. It is theft, and it is wrong. Are you stealing from the government, right? Are you paying your taxes? If you are paying your taxes, are you doing so accurately? Or, or are you kind of cutting some corners? Because honestly, guys, listen, it's really not that hard to do, right? You'll get away with it. In all, in all you know, probability, you will not get caught, right? The IRS is not very concerned with most of us in here who don't make enough for them to really kind of pay attention. So I'm telling you up front, maybe this is bad pastoral advice, but I'm telling you that if you want to cut your corners on your taxes, you're probably going to get away with it, right? Listen, that's just, that is just the honest truth. They probably won't notice. But at some point in time, every single one of us is going to have to give an account to the one governing authority who does notice everything and who does care. At this point, I am not concerned with the government and what the government will do. I am concerned with what, with what our willingness to steal says about our relationship to God. Are we rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's? Right? This is a very clear and simple command from our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? There's just really no way around it. So the government does possess legitimate authority. And it does have the right to collect taxes from its people. Jesus says, render to Caesar, and he has now offended the Pharisees. Oh, but he's just beginning, right? He's, he's, he's going to keep offending people. He's not done yet. Yes, the government possesses legitimate authority, but that legitimate authority is a limited authority, which the second half of Jesus' statement makes very clear. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. That is a huge qualifier, right? And now Jesus has effectively offended the Herodians and Rome, right? So he's got everybody covered here. So Jesus is, in effect, saying to Caesar, yes, you have a legitimate authority, but not to the degree that you want, right? Your authority is limited. Only God's authority is unlimited, right? And that universal, unlimited authority of God is just affirmed throughout Scripture, right? Remember that word that I've used a few times, the Greek word for authority is exousia, right? Ex just means out of or from. Usia means kind of your, your essence or your substance or your being, right? Your, your usia is kind of who you are down at your very core. It, it's your essence. So exousia, authority, comes out of who you are, right? Matthew Shores, pastor of Woodside Community Church, doesn't have the authority to lead the United States of America. All right, that, that right does not come out of my essence or it does not come out of my position. Barack Obama, on the other hand, does possess the rightful authority based upon his credentials and based upon the, the slightly majority vote of the people of this nation to lead the United States. But I want you to notice something, that even, even with Barack Obama, even the most powerful man in the world, the man with the 
highest position of authority. Even he does not possess that authority, exousia, out of his own essence or being, just based on the fact of, of who he is. Only God's authority is truly exousia, right? Only God inherently possesses the right to rule um, based purely upon who he is. Right? Anyone else who has any sort of authority, parents, pastors, teachers, governments, we all receive and derive that authority from God. The only one who possesses authority, ultimate authority from within himself. Right? I couldn't resist taking a brief side note that relates um, to this, but in an important way, uh, concerning an important but, but often overlooked attribute of God. Right? Theology talks about the attributes of God, which just means the, the characteristics of God, or, or what God is like. Right? He's holy, he's just, he's loving, he's all-powerful. These are God's attributes. But there are two separate categories of God's attributes. We talk about his communicable attributes, and we talk about his incommunicable attributes. Right, listen, when you talk about a communicable disease, it's a disease that can be shared. It's a disease that can be spread to other people. Right? So a communicable attribute, or there are those attributes that God shares with his creation, with his creatures, with us. God is love. Well, listen, we can reflect that love to some degree. God is just. Well, we can pursue justice and things of that nature. These are communicable attributes that we have in common with God. Now, obviously, we can't be perfectly holy like God is, right? But we can attain to an imperfect degree of holiness by His grace. So we can be like Him in some of these areas. But God also possesses incommunicable attributes. And these are the qualities of God um, that only He possesses and that are not shared by us. God's eternity, for instance. Only He has existed from all eternity. His omnipresence, right? God is at all times everywhere present. Well, we can only be present at one place at one time. We don't share that quality with God. For our purposes, another of these important attributes is referred to as God's aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. Right? And that comes from the Latin word ase, which just means from himself. Right? From himself. Aseity. This is God's self-existence, right? Everything else that exists, including us, we derive our existence from God, right? We are conditional. We are dependent on Him. God is not dependent on anything. God does not derive His existence from anything. He has the power of being in and of Himself, right? God exists by virtue of His very nature. That's why when someone will come to you and ask you the question, Oh, well, what created God? Well, listen, that person just doesn't understand philosophy or theology. They don't understand the nature of God's existence, that he is self-existent. That question is logically doesn't make any sense in reference to God. God, it is his nature to exist, and he exists from himself. And that is what the word, his personal name, Yahweh, means. He says, I am who I am. Right? It means God has always been and always will be. He is ah said. He is not dependent on anything else. He is God. But we, on the other hand, are completely dependent on Him for everything. Acts 17.28 says that it is in God that we live and move and have our being. Just a few verses earlier, Paul says that God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. 
Since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Isaiah 46, 9 says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient time things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. That is the God of universal and unlimited authority. That's what the choir just sang about. I, I love it, right? God is above all powers. He is above all kings. He is above all created things. He has universal, unlimited authority. Anyone else who has any sort of authority, authority must be given that authority by God. Thus, the authority of government is limited. Because only God can and will do what He wants. His plans cannot be thwarted. He is God. And since He is the creator and the sustainer of everything, we owe everything to Him. I've used a form of this illustration before. Think about it like a, a single mother with her son. Right? She literally births him and brings him into the world. He, he owes his life to her. Then she spends the next 18 years just killing herself, working three jobs, never sleeping, going without, so that she can save every penny and give everything to her son. She puts him into good school. She gets him the best tutors. She, she does everything for him. She, she pours herself out for his good. As a result, he, he does well. He gets into Harvard. He's in one of the best schools in the world, and his, his future is secure. What does this son owe his mother? Everything, right? Everything that he has, including his very life, was given to him by his mother. Right? He would have nothing without her. And that should affect his relationship with her. He should love her and spend time with her and care for her. He should render to his mother what is rightfully his mother's. Devotion, honor, respect, thanks. She gave him everything, um, thus he owes her everything. And that is precisely what Jesus is saying here. Render to God the things that are God's. And what is God's, right? That's what we're just, we're trying to emphasize, right? Everything, right? He created it all. It is, it is His. And this would have been a direct challenge to the authority of Caesar. Because Caesar didn't just want taxes, right? Caesar wanted worship and honor. He wanted unquestioning obedience and loyalty. A few hundred years after this, there was another vicious emperor named Diocletian, and he would demand that everyone worship him and sacrifice to him, and he would brutally torture and kill many Christians who would refuse. Caesar wanted everything. He wanted only what God uh, could rightfully demand, and Jesus is here putting a very strong limit on the rights and the authority of Caesar and all other governments. Notice, look back at verse 16, and notice what he says um, when they bring the coin. Jesus says, whose likeness is this? The King James is better. It says, whose image is this? It's the Greek word icon, right? and it's the exact same word that the Greek Old Testament uses back in Genesis 1.26 when God says, let us make man in our image, our icon. Jesus is saying that, you, listen, you can give to Caesar whatever has his image on it. Just, just give it to him. No big deal. But you must give to God what has his image on it. And that is your very self. We are created in the image of God. Thus, we are his. We owe him everything. 
And Jesus will explain exactly what that means. And we'll get to it in a few weeks here, down in verse 30. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Right? We'll really unpack that here in a few weeks. That's such an important statement. But that is, that is what God demands from us. Right? Are you doing that? Or, or are you keeping from God what is rightfully His? So yes, the authority of government is legitimate. Give them what is their rightful due. Right? Christians should honestly pay their taxes. It's that simple. Right? But that authority of government is limited. Right? Paul's command in Romans 13 to be subject to the governing authorities is not without exception. Right? Scripture itself gives us an exception. In Acts 5, verse 29, the apostles have been preaching right, in Jerusalem. The, the Pharisees, they've arrested them. They get out. They come to them again and say, what are you guys doing? We, we, we forbid you from preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And what does Peter say? Peter replies, we must obey God rather than men. God's authority is universal and unlimited. And it trumps the authority of government a hundred times out of a hundred. Right? And there very well may come a time um, in this nation when we have to do that. Right? It may become illegal for me to preach a biblical sexual ethic in this church. Right? But listen, if that happens, right, I will be compelled to continue to preach it because it is the clear revelation of Scripture. And my obedience is first to God and then to government. Right? God's law prevails over the law of the state every single time. But listen, the answer is not, I'm just not going to pay my taxes, right? That's not how it works. Uh, there, there are plenty of other legal and legitimate options for, for how to pursue tax reform and how to kind of legally go about wanting to, to make changes and make your voice heard. But the, the option not available for us is to just break the law and not pay the taxes, right? Jesus and Paul say otherwise here. Right? I want us to be involved in politics. I want us to be a part of, of changing the system and pursuing the good of this nation. Right? But, but we can't do that by just neglecting the laws and telling other people that, oh, no, this is okay, law, well, it doesn't matter. No, Jesus says otherwise. But God's law always prevails and supersedes the law of the state. Only God possesses the authority to, to rightfully require my full obedience and worship. So do you see just how brilliant and how just thick Jesus' statement is, right? Because his attackers did. The, the passage ends with a statement, and they marveled at him. They wanted him dead. They wanted to kill him. And they left just helpless and marveling at his reply. So tell me, do you marvel at Jesus? Are you amazed by the wisdom and the love and the power and grace of this man? Or has he, has he become stale and boring and unexciting to you? Have you really ever appreciated who he is and what he has done? Are you following him? Right? And by following, I mean, are you obeying him? Right? That's, that's really all that it means. He says, pay your taxes to the government under which you are living. The, the government whose services you are benefiting from. Are you obeying Jesus in this area of your life? But far more importantly, are you obeying Jesus in the question of rendering to God the things that are God's? Right? Because it is your whole self that belongs to Him. Are you giving to Him what is rightfully His? And listen, I, I am strongly encouraging you that you should. Right? Not just because it's His right, it, it is His right, that, that's, that's enough of a reason. But there, there's more to it than that. 
I'm telling you that, that you should render to God what is God's because He is worth it. Right? In Romans 8, Paul calls us, us debtors. In verse 32, he says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Why should you render to God what is His? Not because it's just His right, but also because of what He did for you in His Son, Jesus Christ. Right? God is not just sitting up there, far off, demanding His subjects to come and serve Him and to give Him money. That's what Caesar was doing. That's not what God is doing. God Himself descended. Right? He came down. He submitted Himself and He died for us. Right? We were so caught up and ensnared in our sin that we couldn't render to God what was His until He set us free from that sin. And that's what He does through Jesus Christ. Jesus died the death that you deserved and he, and he freed you from your penalty and your debt. That is a God that we can trust. right? That is a God that is worth following and obeying in some of these areas that, that we struggle with. He is not like any other governing authority just demanding things from you. Right? He, is the, he is the one authority who is kind and loving and merciful and giving. Right? He is the only authority that is giving his own life to save yours. He served you in the ultimate way by sending Jesus to die for you. Right? He is like the mother who gave up everything for her son. Right? God has done that for you through Jesus. Jesus, as God, possessed just universal, unlimited authority. He was in the form of God. But he tells us, Paul tells us, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The only one with universal, unlimited authority submitted himself to the very authorities that he had authority over. Right? And he did it for sinners like you and like me. That is an authority that is worth submitting ourselves to, right? That is a God who is worthy to receive everything from us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you um, for this hard word. Father, we thank you that your word doesn't just affirm us in our sin and leave us where we are. Father, it really challenges us. Father, forgive me for my, my sinful desire um, to hold on to my money as if it was my God. Father, to cling to every penny of it. Father, because in it I find my, my security, um, Lord, and my comfort sometimes. Father, free us um, from the grasp that our money has on us. Uh, Father, I pray um, that we would be uh, able to be obedient to you in this area. Father, not particularly just because um, you know, we love the government and we want to submit to them and be a government, but Father, because, because we love you and we want to submit to you and we want to obey you in this area, Lord. Father, I pray that you would challenge us. Father, I pray um, that you would um, just kind of, you would draw us closer um, to your son, Jesus Christ, in this area. Father, he was the one who, who perfectly um, rendered to Caesar. Father, he didn't render to Caesar what Caesar deserved. Father, but he rendered his very life to Caesar, and he did it for us. Father, he gave up his life so that ours could be saved. Father, show us that. Father, build within us a desire to follow him. Grant us faith and repentance. Father, show us what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Father, and then just give us the desire to do that um, in some small way uh, for other people um, in the world. Father, we, we confess our sinfulness. We confess how short we fall. 
of your revelation, your commands. But Father, we thank you that our standing um, with you is not dependent on how well we do these things. But Father, it is dependent on our relationship to Jesus Christ. Father, in his relationship to you never fluctuates and never changes. So our eternity is secure in Christ. Father, we thank you that you are the ultimate uh, universal um, authority. Father, we thank you um, that your authority is a benevolent and kind and good authority, uh, Father, that it is for our benefit. Father, help us use this word in each of our lives. We thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.